Welcome. This is Cascade Church Portland's podcast. We exist to invite all people to join us as we follow Jesus together in bringing heaven to earth. Um, so last Sunday, this is like the confession part of the message. I was, I did not attend a church. I was in Las Vegas and I was at a sports bar. Because um, can I tell you something? As a pastor, the ability to sit and watch the 10 a.m. football game is something that I've never, I never get to do that. Um, and my life is not like worse because of it. But there's something so wonderful about just sitting in front of an array of television sets that are running various football games, and you can decide at any point, I'm no longer interested in that game, and I will now watch this game. Uh, and I was doing a lot of that. But at this particular sports bar, there's this trend that happens more and more where you see them where they have the big stacks of Jenga. Are you aware? Like the big, huge ones. And they were playing behind me on a metal table. And every time that thing collapsed, I was certain that someone had charged into this particular sports bar and was like Jesus in the temple style, knocking things over left and right. It was terrifying, and it very much robbed from my experience. <laughs> but it got me thinking about Jenga. So here's a couple of questions for you. Rules of Jenga. Uh, because I've played Jenga with different people, not trying to brag, uh, but we played up in my particular family. We played a particular set of rules. So one of our rules, I just want to see like nod of heads. Yes, these are the rules you play with. You're like, I don't know what you're talking about. We had the one hand rule. You don't get to throw two hands in there to like push and pull. One hand is what you get to use at any given point to move it. And, and this is one that is very important to me. We played the, the moment you touch one, that's the one you have to move. You don't get to do the Velociraptor Jurassic Park at the fence where you're just poking all over and you find the one that gives. That's how cheaters play. You get in there and you get on one and you really have to, and like, this is not a good one. But one hand and you, Beep. see, that's so much more satisfying. <laughs> Thank you, Janet. <laughs> Saw the rest of you not clapping. Um, the reason we want to talk about Jenga is I actually think Jenga and the game itself is a helpful metaphor for power dynamics. I think it's actually a really helpful metaphor to use in talking about how systems and cultures and governments work. And I think that when Jesus is talking to us on the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about this upside-down kingdom or understanding of who God is and what God is trying to do, a lot of it can be understood through Jenga. So we're going to reference this Jenga stack a lot today. If you haven't been with us so far, we are finishing up this morning a message series on power dynamics. And power dynamics are just simply uh, power, which is uh, an individual's ability to influence others. Uh, it's as simple as we've defined it here. Is how do we understand in any given room, in any given relationship, in any given system or setting, how are those power dynamics at play? Who has more power to influence the other person? Um, and it becomes really interesting. This talking about power dynamics is a whole new way of seeing and experiencing the world. Once you learn about power dynamics, it really influences how your family dynamics, 
where you grew up or the family, if you're a part of a family system now. It influences where you work. It influences where you worship. It influences how you see news stories playing out and which news stories grab the headlines and what don't. It all plays into this understanding. And how we want to link it and talk about it today is we want to go back to the biggest collection of Jesus' teaching that we have in the Bible. Uh, You would think like Jesus, he was a great teacher. And although that is certainly a reputation that he has and we see reflected through the scripture, we don't have huge chunks of Jesus just teaching um, outside of the Sermon on the Mount. And so that's what we want to look at this morning. If you brought your Bible with you, I encourage you to turn to Matthew 5. Um, And we're going to talk about it, we're going to set a little bit of the context, and we're going to jump in. This is going to be as much fun as you've had with the Bible in at least seven days. So here we go. Uh, Matthew 4. We're going to start just before the Sermon on the Mount to set some of the, the setting. So Jesus, who at the age of 30 is when he starts his ministry. So Jesus, uh, there's actually a long gap. We got baby Jesus in a manger. We have young Jesus at the temple with his parents. And then, uh, as I'm sure we would all hope for our own lives, you just skip prepubescence and adolescence. You skip right to 30. Uh, I apologize if you're younger than that. It's a great age. Uh, But we start with Jesus at 30. And he's baptized by John the Baptist. In this moment, they hear this voice, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. The dove descends. This is seen as imagery of the Holy Spirit blessing and inaugurating Jesus' ministry. And he immediately capitalizes on this huge moment by going into the desert all alone for 40 days. Introverts, woo, get all excited about that. I'm not one. I'm imagining that's how you feel. So Jesus is in the desert for 40 days. He comes back after that and he starts preaching. His first message that he preaches is repent for the kingdom of God is near or the kingdom of God is here. And it becomes this tricky understanding. How do we understand this word repent? And why do we need to do that in preparation of the kingdom of God coming to earth? Part of what we're going to talk about and the way we're going to frame this is the kingdom of God. Another way of understanding that is what would the world look like? What would our systems, our relationships look like if God who created us and knows us better than we know ourselves was in charge? And in that system that some people's thriving or some people being able to successfully know who they are, who God created them to be and to interact in the world is prioritized over others is unthinkable. I mean, put another way, wouldn't it make sense that if God created all people, this is the theology of the Christian church, then some people don't just become the stepping stones for others, but all stories are held equally. There's an equality of all people. And what we're looking for in the kingdom of God is the mutual thriving of all people. That your thriving doesn't come at the expense of someone else. So, can you think if there's no society, there's no culture that has ever existed on this earth to which Jesus wouldn't show up and say, repent, the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is here. Almost all of our systems and societies they result on some people having less and other people having more. That some people's stories, some people's narratives are prioritized over other people's. So to repent is to recognize that this way of living, of doing violence to other people, is not the way that God created us to engage with one another. And we have to change the systems. 
This is what Jesus, this is Jesus' first message. He's basically calling everyone to wake up. And if you check his words later throughout scripture, Jesus says those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. He's saying, wake up, listen. Do you see what's happening here? And how this fights against the very image of God planted inside each and every one of us. From there, he does some healings. He calls his first disciples and the crowds come. And we can see this here in Matthew 4, verses 24 and 25. News about him spread all over Syria. The people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, to briefly put this into context, we have a map up here. Uh, And if you can't see it all, that's okay. I just want to give you an idea that when they reference all these different places, you can see the Decapolis up at the top by the Sea of Galilee. Thank you, Ty. And then the Jordan River runs down into the Dead Sea at the bottom. And you can see that's where Jerusalem is. That's where Judea is. So it's people from around this entire region. Jesus wasn't just in a small kind of locate, but he was all over. And to give you a sense of scale, next to it over here on the other side, we have a map that basically mirrors the distance there. It would be from Vancouver to Eugene. That's the the same distance. So it's a huge, huge area of which Jesus is drawing and where people know who he is in a society that doesn't have cars. They can't travel that in an afternoon. This is a huge area. Jesus is drawing people from all over. So what becomes interesting when we get into the Sermon on the Mount here is how we open in Matthew 5, verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. The reason why I want to put that aside is, why would the crowds show up? What were they there for? Jesus was doing miraculous healings. He was taking people who were cast aside, who had no hope or little hope in the society, were seen as second-class citizens, and his healing of them was able to bring them into full standing within the society. If someone is paralyzed, you, you can't work. And clearly we see people who are paralyzed as begging all the time. That's a second-class citizen within this. Jesus' healing of these people oftentimes goes with, and go and present yourself at the temple. He's not saying, take a victory lap. What he's saying there is that the, the leaders of the synagogue, the rabbis there, were the ones that could reinstate you, especially the lepers, back into society. Jesus was taking people who weren't seen or were at the bottom rungs, so to speak, of the Jenga stack, and he was saying, you belong. Your story is the same as anyone else's here. And what's interesting is all these people are gathering because they're looking for healing, and Jesus brings a teaching. That means that What I think Jesus is doing in the teaching is he's giving words and he's giving explanation to why he's doing the healing. We can't see the teaching and the healing as two separate things. Jesus isn't like doing two different acts of a play where he's saying, all right, it's healing time. Who wants healing? All right, I'm going to do some teaching over here now. These aren't separate acts, but one informs the other and back and forth. They're communicating with each other. So let's see what Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount has to say about people who have nothing and are bringing 
are being brought healing. So let's look. This is in Matthew 5. We're going to be looking verses 3 through 12. This section is kind of classically known as the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, one thing to, to note there is when Jesus saying, they're going to persecute you like they persecuted the prophets, it would be important to say, who were the prophets and what did they do? All throughout the Old Testament, the, the second half of the Old Testament is prophet after prophet after prophet. And one way of understanding the prophets is they came and they were like soothsayers who could see the future and they could say, is there a Tobias here? You will be trampled by a donkey if you continue on your path. This isn't what prophets were or what they did. Prophets were people, usually in, in this setting, they were in the Jewish system who understood the Jewish people, and they came and said, if you continue the trajectory that you're on, here's what's going to happen. If you continue to live a life of violence, violent death will become you. And the prophets were very unpopular. You don't have popular prophets that people were really excited about and really wanted around. Because they kept on saying, you have a system where some people have to be on the bottom so other people can be at the top. And this is not why God started this entire endeavor. If you go back to Abraham, calling out Abraham and saying, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. The prophets are saying, this isn't the great nation. We haven't done it. This is actually in violation of what God created for you. And we see this in the Israelite history over and over again. How is it that the people brought out of slavery in Egypt use slave labor to build Solomon's temple a couple hundred years later? They perverted the whole story, the whole narrative that God gave them. This is the kind of people you're going to be. They weren't doing it. And when the prophets called that out and said specifically, this is how you got your money, this is how you got your power. This is how you got your prestige. They weren't popular. They were usually cast out. They were usually told to leave. They lived these other lives. And when Jesus is saying here is that if you are going to be doing this thing and you're going to be cast out by society by calling out the ways that it is not living up to the inheritance it should have from God who created and ordered it, you're not going to be very popular. Jesus isn't saying one day they're going to come and they're going to try and take prayer out of our public schools and you're going to be persecuted for that and you should be really sad. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Because by the way, as much as that's something that was popular for a while, you can't take prayer out of schools. It's impossible. That's not what prayer is. That's certainly not the prayers that Jesus talked about. The only kind of prayers you could restrict from schools are the kind of prayers that are led from the front and everyone has to do this, which isn't the way God operates at all. That isn't the way that Jesus operated at all. 
So if you live in this idealized Christian nation, or for them, God's nation, and you're creating threats or you're creating attacks that are out there and saying, this is the persecution that Jesus was talking about, I don't think it is. I think it's a prophetic kind of persecution that comes from people that says this system is broken and rotten to its very core. And as long as some people have to be at the bottom so other people can be at top, we have to say something as Christians, as followers of Christ, as people that see the image of God in every single person. Whew, got to slow down. All right, I want to look at four different parts of this, and we're going to kind of walk through and say, well, what are they talking about? The first is we're going to look at hashtag blessed. So are you guys familiar with this hashtag? Very popular, right? Uh, If you're having an awesome brunch, you snap a photo of that and you say hashtag blessed. And what's interesting is the reason why I bring that up is we have this comment in our language today. This talk about I'm blessed. It's this way of kind of dissociating from whatever the thing is happening. This is something that is happening to me for which I'm very grateful. And by the way, that attitude of gratitude is wonderful and necessary and needed. We need to have an awareness that there are things that we've received in life that we did not till that soil and we did not plant those seeds. It is a blessing that we've received. But what's interesting is usually the things that we call blessed are the products of systems that actually don't look a lot like God's systems or the systems that Jesus was talking about. Look what Jesus was putting hashtag blessed on. Those who mourn. When's the last time you saw someone take a selfie at a funeral, hashtag blessed? It's not the kind of blessing that we're talking about when we're talking about blessing. And what I think Jesus is doing here very strategically is he's speaking into a culture that's actually a lot like ours that has to tell a narrative about what's happening around us. There's things happening around us all the time and our brains are constantly trying to make sense of it. To live in a country where some people have so much and other people have nothing at all, we're constantly entertaining or creating narratives about why that is. I saw this person on the street. I was going to give them some money, but I don't know. They'll probably spend it on drugs. That's a narrative we tell ourselves to explain why this person has nothing and is sitting on the streets so that we can continue living our lives. I don't think it's this unspeakable cruelty. I don't think it's an lie from the Illuminati to keep the structures in place. I think actually we all contribute to that narrative because to live in it is dissonance. I was just in Las Vegas. It's the most extreme place I've ever been in my life. I was just telling some people, they don't have ads out on the street for like a sensible wrap for $5. Come in and eat it. Everything's like $9.99, all-you-can-eat buffet all day, bottomless mimosas. Everything is about the most extreme. And you're walking around a place that's buildings are the most extreme. And by the way, I'm the biggest buzzkill in Vegas because I was walking around and being like, look at these narratives we're recreating. We rebuilt Rome. We rebuilt Rome and Caesar's palace, and that's the thing we're doing. We rebuilt the pyramid, built by slave labor, the Israelites, our heroes, we read them out of the book. We rebuilt that here. 
And we're like, look at what he did, we! A whole place and huge buildings that are built on the sufferings of lots and lots of people that don't have the money to lose. A whole place that is built on excessive drinking of alcohol. It needs it. Las Vegas does not survive the scrutiny of the light of day. And Las Vegas isn't the problem. It's a symptom of a country where that's true all around us. And when you walk the streets of Vegas and you see Ferraris and Lamborghinis going up the street and you see people that are homeless on the ground and digging through the trash, your brain has to tell a story about that. Or you fall on the ground and you weep. And the narrative we tell ourselves is they probably made some poor choices in the past and that explains this. And they probably made some good choices in their past and that explains this. When Jesus uses the phrase blessed and assigns it to the weak, the powerless, those who thirst for justice but don't see it, those who mourn, what he's saying is your system isn't working. Your system isn't God's system. I don't think Jesus is saying the goal is to be mourning. But what Jesus is saying is don't assume that mourning is a product of something you did. And we live in a culture that loves to blame victims. And we love to shame them and we love to tell them it's probably something you did that deserved this. All of us participate in this to some level. And the reason why we do it is we can't stand to live in a culture where there are so many victims over and over and over again. We have to tell ourselves a story about it. And Jesus is saying that's a bad story. Stop telling that story. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers. They're going to inherit the kingdom of earth. They're going to inherit this whole thing because it's so rotten at the core that the people that have to live in those places are suffering too. No one's coming out of this unscathed. No one's coming out of these systems unscathed. The next thing is Jesus says one line, blessed are the meek. And I want to talk about meekness for a second because it ties into power dynamics really importantly. Meekness or being meek is usually equated with being weak. But meekness is not that at all. Meekness is power under control. Jesus is identified as showing and demonstrating meekness. There was never a room that Jesus walked into where he wasn't the most powerful person there. So if Jesus is assigned with meekness, it has nothing to do with weakness. It has everything to do with being aware of the power you have. And by the way, when you're serving, it in ways that are serving others. And by the way, when you're serving others, not in a way to manipulate or control how other people view you or think about you, but when you're engaging and seeing others and partnering with them in their story, this does incredible benefits for us. Now we get to see ourselves through different eyes. Jesus had all the power and was using it appropriately in different times. Jesus wasn't always whipping people out of the temple, but he did it. Jesus, and this one's hard for us, Jesus wasn't always healing people, but Jesus did it. Jesus wasn't always teaching, but he did it. Jesus wasn't always confronting the Pharisees, but he did it. He had the power to do it, and he used it to great effect over and over and over again. Jesus wasn't just saying there, blessed are the weak, they're going to get some stuff. No, no, no. Blessed are those who recognize the power they've been given and steward it well. The third one is to talk about persecution. 
We talked a lot about persecution and how you use it. Like I said, Jesus makes an allusion to the prophets, and the prophets were the ones that called out the system and that this is not what God created. This isn't a reflection of God's kingdom where everyone has value and worth and is heard and seen. We haven't seen that the image of God in all people, we haven't created a society that's done that. And so, by the way, anytime you critique a society, it's like the most Christian thing you can do. Until we, otherwise, what you're saying is, we did it, everybody. We should probably throw a party, get some cupcakes and balloons. We did it. Kingdom of God, everybody. We've arrived. Either that, we're not sitting here even at Cascade Church and being like, Cascade Church, we've arrived, best church on the land. Because we're not at the kingdom of God yet. We still have more to do. So every voice that questions, every voice that brings in critique, every voice that says, hey, what about this thing that you do is necessary for the system to grow and further become that. We need those voices it's one of the reasons why curiosity is a core value at Cascade. Unless we're getting curious about the systems that exist, that most of us have grown up in, in generation after generation, decade after decade. Most of us live about a generation. Let's not get it carried away. And these systems that we lived in for decade after decade, we're not even aware how it impacts us. We're not even aware of how it creates the reality that we see in the narrative that we tell ourselves. We need voices coming in and saying, this thing's been going on a long time, but that doesn't make it right. Because we're not at the kingdom of God yet. We haven't arrived there yet. Persecution is always going to come in relation to the power that is held by the systems you're calling. You're calling out. Here's what I mean by that. If you were to attack someone who had nothing, they might fight back with just their hands. If you were to attack someone with a taser, chances are high they would use the taser to subdue you. If you were to attack someone with a gun, chances are high they would use that gun against you. In the same way, the questions that you ask of different systems, they will fight back to protect themselves, usually unconsciously, with the power that they have available to them. I was recently down in Albuquerque, and I was listening to uh, Richard Rohr talk. And one of the things that Richard Rohr was saying that I love so much is Richard Rohr is very much a prophet, and he's called out all kinds of things that he's seen in America and the ways that we orient ourselves as a nation and as a country. And he said he hasn't gotten a lot of pushback on things. The things he's gotten the most pushback and unsubscribes and called out in angry emails is capitalism. Isn't that fascinating? Capitalism, you're not aware, it's, it's the system that we live in. We are in a capitalist society, which means, simply, if we all as a nation just decided to stop buying stuff, this whole thing would fall apart. The entirety of our country is built on you being dissatisfied with what you have and buying more things. It's how it runs. And I'm not saying like, well, I'm not a part of it. This is a new shirt. I just bought this not that long ago. And not only that, this is how a capitalist society, my wife can attest to this. I bought it during the summer, forgot I had it, and just found it and went, oh, a shirt. And I decided to wear it this Sunday. We live in a culture and a system that needs that to keep on going. 
And so when you call it out and says, hey, this system of capitalism where we have to keep on buying, we have to live in perpetual dissatisfaction with our lives and our realities, that doesn't seem to be God's system. It's like attacking someone who has a gun. It's how everybody lives and works. And most people around you will say, on some level, even unconsciously, hey, stop it. That's how this works. And the reality is it probably works for many of us in this room. But it is worth asking if God is the creator of every human life, who isn't it working for? Are there people in our world with which the capitalist society doesn't work? Because most people would say, if every nation on the face of the planet consumed at the level that the United States consumed today, we would eradicate them ourselves. We wouldn't need nuclear weapons. Our consumption would be so great that we would destroy ourselves with waste, consumption, goods, trash. makes us all a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? It makes us feel a bit powerless. And I think that's good because a reminder, if you're not hearing the words of Jesus through the lens of they killed him at the end of saying these things, you're not hearing the words of Jesus. And frankly, I'm at a point where I'm like, we need to get back to the prophetic nature of Jesus Christ Because what we do as a nation is we keep whitewashing our prophets and we keep on making their message less and less and less to the point where we no longer can recognize our prophets today. We just keep on repeating the cycles. Oh, Jesus, he just preached a message of love. Well, these guys aren't talking about love. They're kneeling for the national anthem. Martin Luther King Jr., he just wanted everyone to be equal, right? It was more than that. There's a reason why they shot the man. And part of the reason, as we talked about before, is he started to talk about the hypocrisy of the United States and the fact that you say that you want to care about people here when we live in the largest military complex that exists in the world. This last year, take a guess which nation dropped the most bombs in the world. It wasn't Belarus. It was us. And is when we start to recognize that we're a part of these systems that create harm and violence against others so we can enjoy what we have, we say, "Uh uh-oh. There's more we have to do as Christians, as people that live in a whole society where God created everyone. And as long as systems like this exist, so I get to be somewhere up here in the world and other people will pay the price down there, When you call out those systems, that's the kind of persecution Jesus is talking about. Let's stop creating persecutions. Let's stop creating this idea that Christians in America and white Christians in America are under attack. White Christians in America can keep on doing what they're doing for generations and we're going to be fine. We're so well insulated by generational wealth We're so well insulated by policies that have been created by our ancestors and people that came before us, we're going to be okay for a long time. We're not under attack, but the people that start to question that and to say, actually, the systems we've created that have protected us and harmed others, they might be the problem. Now you're going to find some real persecution. And I would encourage all of us to start leaning more into that. The last thing I want to talk, and it ties into that, have you heard that phrase, love it or leave it? Talking about America? 
America. Love it or leave it. That is a symptom of power held on to and power well-established. Love it or leave it. You, right now, hey, this is my church. Love it or leave it. If you don't like it, you can go next door. There's a church right over there. I need to stop with the southern accent, and I apologize for that. (laughs) I am really sorry about that. If I were to say, I've been here longer than anyone, and if you don't like the stuff we're talking about, you need to go. That's a demonstration of power. I have more power because I've been here longer. So I'm going to normalize my experience. And if your experience doesn't jive with my normalized experience, then you should leave. And this is the story that we tell over and over again. These are power dynamics at work. If you say, it's working for me, and if it doesn't work for you, leave. Oh, I can't think of anything that more greatly breaks the heart of God. Because what you're saying is, my story has more value than you. And I think we need to, I love it, so you leave it. And I think we need to change the ways that we see our lives, we see our realities, and we talk to one another in a way that is capturing what Jesus is getting at with the Sermon on the Mount about where blessing exists. All right. So what? (laughs) Some of you might have been like, this is great. I agree with most of what you said. Some of you would be like, I didn't agree with any of it, but, you know, probably 10 minutes more to go, and then we'll get out of here and never come back again. (laughs) At the end of the day, more than just agreeing or disagreeing, we should say, well, what do we do with this? Because it's a big, overwhelming call, which, by the way, was the same big, overwhelming call that the Israelite people had to hear from their prophets. It's the same big, overwhelming call that the followers of Jesus would have heard. Let's not <laughs> convince ourselves that Jesus would preach these messages and everyone go like, I know exactly what to do. I'm going to go do that now. Most people were overwhelmed, sad, and in despair, and they, they left confused. They didn't know what to do. The first thing I want to talk about is uh, there's this great video. It's this woman, her name is Robin DiAngelo, um, and she's a sociologist. She studied, she actually coined the phrase white fragility. Um, If that's a trigger for you, come talk to me after service. But one of the things she talked about when she talked about this phrase and how we get triggered and understand that is how racism, and I'm going to talk about racism for a second because I think it exposes power dynamics in general, how they work and perpetuate. What she said is the reason why we can't have honest conversations about race in our country is we've defined racism or racist to an individual who acts consciously with ill intent. It can't be a group of people. It can't be a system. It can't be Target. It has to be an individual. By the way, I'm not accusing Target of racism. Uh, But it can't be a big organization. It has to be an individual who knows what they're doing, and they have bad intentions. They have evil intentions. On that definition, how many people do you know that are racist? Hardly anyone. Change this definition. An individual who acts consciously with ill intent to sexism. How many sexists do you know? 
How many ageists do you know? How many socioeconomists do you know? I made that word up, and it's not a good one. <laughs> when we believe that it's just individuals that we have to deal with who are acting consciously, they're making decisions to do harmful things in our world and in our society today, and they know that they're doing it, then there's no conversation to be had about anything because they don't exist. It's a straw man, it's a straw woman. We're creating these ideas. And what I think we do with that is, how do we move these conversations from just trying to identify and shame individuals to talking about um, the systems that perpetuate injustice? There's a lot of times where we talk about situations that happen and we say, well, there's no way to know. It's a he said, she said, which sounds like a good idea at first. It sounds like there's a quality there, doesn't it? Go track the history of he said, she said, and see which side we land on. Much more often than not, it's going to be on he said and not she said. And we talk about these large systems that keep on going that cause us to not hear certain stories. It's their word versus their word. Go trace the power and you're going to find out which story trumps the other. Go sit in a courtroom. Do you think everyone who's tried of the exact same charges, who do you think serves full term on their prison sentence and who doesn't? Who has power? Who has money? Do you know what O.J. Simpson was? Most people didn't believe O.J. Simpson was innocent. They were just excited that someone from a minority group got free from his crime in the same way that white people that had been in power had gotten off for their crimes for generation after generation after generation. These are systems that are rolling in place and we want to boil them down to individuals and we want to attack individuals and we want to scapegoat in our society where we make this person our problem, we put all of our sins on them and we send them out of our society, we shame them, we vilify them and whew, we're better. That's a recipe for repeating the same process over and over and over again. And right now in our country, the partisanship is so toxic that we can't even talk. We can't even have a conversation with one another because half of what I've said today, you assume you know my political party because of how I've, I've framed certain conversations. That's not a reflection of dialogue and engagement with our society and what's going on. That's labeling individuals as, well, they think this, and so I don't have to listen, or they think this, and I don't have to listen anymore. Or, oh, I know what you're trying to say. I know where you're going with that. The first step in understanding power dynamics is to have actual conversations and to start, look, are there bigger systems at play that are keeping these violence rolling one after the other after the other? How do we address those? How do we participate in these? And a big part of that is elevating people's stories. I would love to live in a society that was truly he said, she said. That sounds amazing from where we are today. I would love to live in a place where we could hear two stories and they were equal going into it, but they're not. And we need to address that as a culture or we're just going to keep on the cycle of violence. Other thing that I want to leave you with this morning is how do we go and live meekly? 
Remember, meekness is power under control. One lie that the Jenga stack society wants to tell you is some people have power and others don't. And the reality is while power is not always equal in everyone, everyone has power. You can't demonstrate meekness. You can't have power under control if you don't recognize the power that you have. And not recognizing the power you have is a tool like a person being attacked who has a gun and doesn't recognize that they have the most deadly lethal force in the the fight. You will use it to harm the other person to much greater levels every single time because you don't recognize the power that you have. One of my favorite examples because it opened me up is that in this church right now, do you remember in elementary school where like a teacher or the PE coach or someone say, hey, everyone pair up. If that never caused a deep sense of dread, that exposed that you felt comfortable and confident. You had another relationship where it was unthinkable that they would pick anyone other than you. If you're in a system and we say pair up and you don't have dread, that's power. And usually what we do is we use that power to make ourselves comfortable. I'm going to quickly turn to the person I know would pick me, and we're going to choose each other and we're going to be good. Rarely does someone say, oh, I know I have a partner. I'm going to take a second to look around the room and see who doesn't have one. We usually don't do that because we on autopilot, unconsciously, we'll always use our power to make ourselves more comfortable and to protect the power that we have. If you know one other person in this church, you have incredible power. Do you have eyes to see someone who's new? Do you have eyes to see someone who's here for the first time? I'm not, don't, you don't need to do it right now, okay? Let's not make this a thing. But let's be aware of the power we have and let's steward that well to look out for those who don't have it and we share it with them. It doesn't cost you anything to have a conversation with someone who doesn't have someone to have a conversation. To partner up with someone who doesn't have a partner doesn't cost you anything. But it's good stewardship of power, and it means everything to the person who is powerless. It means everything to the person who didn't have anything coming into that situation. They just wanted equality. They just wanted a partner like everybody else. And they didn't want to have to walk around the room sad and desperate, hoping someone would pick them. In all of your systems, in your families, in your homes, in your friendships, you have power. Are you hearing Jesus' call to use that to serve and share with everyone? Because the big secret of the Jenga stack, that some have to be on the bottom and on the top, if we buy into that system, the best we could ever come up with is usually how people have interpreted the Sermon on the Mount. We just need to get the people on the top, on the bottom. I mean, the people on the bottom, on the top. That just means there's a new group of people on the bottom. I think what's really true is that the Jenga stack doesn't need to exist and can't exist in the kingdom of God. The Jenga stack in and of itself, if we keep on thinking on, well, these people are at the bottom, these people are on the top, and how do we reverse it instead of how do we level it? Because this is a system that's working against how God created us we're going to keep on doing the same thing over and over and over again. Would you pray with me?